And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug and play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point of sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. The Athletic. The race is on, and with Lewis Hamilton and George Russell committed to Mercedes until the end of 2025, and constant speculation about Sergio Perez's F1 future, the driver market landscape is shifting. But what happens next, and what does it mean for future top team opportunities? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me with all the answers are Josh Sutil and Glenn Freeman. Well, Josh, welcome back. It's been a few weeks since we've had you on the podcast, enjoying F1 being back up and running, a couple of interesting races after the break. I think the second half of the season started really strong. A great mixed conditions weekend in Zandvoort and then at Monza, you know, the Ferrari Mania off track was matched by a really good race on track. So it's been a good and I hope that continues. You know, the title battle is is more or less sealed. I don't think that we're going to be getting a classic title decider. You know, bring back V10s has just been looking at the top 10 title deciders of the V10 era. And I don't think this year's title decider, whenever it happens, is is going to live up to those. Um, But yeah, you never know. It's, It's always fun to look back at least and, and sort of look at the storylines from from past seasons but I think there's, there's still plenty to enjoy as well uh, this season. And Glenn Freeman the architect of Bring Back V10 seeing as you finished I think recording the latest series we can take up a bit more of your time with F1 podcasting now are you uh, enjoying having a bit of a break or is it straight into the next series? I'm deliberately trying to give myself a few weeks break before we start the proper prep I think I've got an episode list but It's one of those things, the longer I wait to start the research for the next series, the more pressure I'm going to be under when that research, uh, when when I start that process. So it's a difficult juggling act. Do I I put my feet up for a couple of weeks and then make myself work harder? Or do I just get on with it earlier and somehow make it take twice as long to do? So yeah, difficult balancing act. And uh, yeah, there I was. I'd, I'd, I'd put my microphone down. It was no longer attached to my desk. And then I get a message saying, can you be on the F1 podcast? And I said, of course, with lots of enthusiasm. Excellent. And I think what you said there about the uh, the effort that goes into Bring Back V10s will tell people why it runs in series rather than as a 24-7, all year round, constant podcast, because it's a huge amount of work. Yeah, the, the thought of that is terrifying. Um, if... <laughs> if it was successful enough that I could make a full-time income from it on its own or the race could, uh, then I would happily just do that all the time because it's great fun to do. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a lot of work. And I think I think the show benefits from a little break. Everybody can catch up on the episodes they haven't heard yet. They can go back to the beginning and listen to the early ones if you've not listened to them before or listen to them again. Some of our listeners do go back when we haven't got a series on. They listen to the old ones and I love that. And... We're, uh, as you well know, Ed, we're going to be doing some more bonus content in the future for the Race Members Club. So we're going to be keeping ourselves busy, but I'm coming up with ways to do stuff for the Members Club that doesn't require quite so much uh, 
intensive labour on my part in future. It's got that good quality as well, the the Vita Nero of having sort of not too much quantity as well. It's a bit reflective uh, uh, versus modern F1. It's got that more sort of, you know, there isn't a race every weekend. There isn't a, a, a podcast episode every weekend of the year. It's got a bit more of a, yeah, a special quality to it. It was a simpler time. So when we're 20, 25 years on from today, whatever bring back V10's form exists then, we'll have to do it frenetically. There'll be sprint episodes. There'll be every <laughs> uh, every day has to count for something. Yeah, and, uh, and it will be a company. People do say, uh, oh, 20 years from now when you're doing bring back MGUHs, um, which isn't quite as catchy, but uh, so people do bring it up. And I can't tell if it's exciting to think of what we'll be what we would be doing if the show still exists then, or if it's terrifying to think that what we're doing at the moment will work, you know, it's like when we, we did Spa 98 recently, the famous Belgian Grand Prix won by Jordan, and we were sat there going, that's 25 years ago now. So the, the thought of what we're living through at the moment, being a quarter of a century in the past, uh, is scary because I'll be very old by then. You say that, but even some of the more recent ones, when occasionally we stray into the V8 territory, I think, oh yeah, I was there, that was only the other day. And you think, oh, that was 12 years ago. <laughs> Time does fly past. So we'll be into that before you know it. So yeah, frequent episodes accompanied by loud music. That's the F1 formula for success. Make sure nobody can hear themselves think seems to be the thing. Except for when the cars are running, when everything's a little bit quieter. Strange way the world has turned. But anyway, let's get on with the topic at hand. Josh, we didn't have that much chance to talk about this on our Italian Grand Prix review podcast or indeed any chance but the announcement that Lewis Hamilton signed up for two more years with Mercedes was a long anticipated one and a significant one as well so was there any surprise on your part that Hamilton was up for two more years? No I, I don't think so I mean as you, as you said they've been saying that it's basically ready to be signed for a, a very long time this is a one of the most lucrative contracts in all of sport so I think it's it's no surprise that it, it took a while you know they said it was with the lawyers and I think that's a, a fairly reasonable excuse, being such a lucrative deal and and so many kind of elements to it. Um, you even see it with other drivers as well. But the difference is that, you know, this is Hamilton and Mercedes. So, of course, there's going to be a lot more speculation around it, a lot more questions around it. Um, but yeah, it was no surprise in the end. And I think it all comes down to that pursuit of that that eighth world title, which I still think that both driver and team, you know, believe they, they lost unfairly in, in 2021. Um, Hamilton said it, it. it isn't about revenge and I think that's more semantics really he's saying okay it's not about revenge but it is about winning that title that was lost um, two years ago and, and I think that's what this is about clearly he doesn't have the car to do it this year he may not have the car to do it you know next year either but he's sticking around for two years at least um, to, to give himself the best chance of that so uh, yeah it, it's no surprise when you've been kind of following what he's been saying all year, even though that they haven't taken a step forward this year. Clearly he believes, or at least hopes, that uh, he will have the car next year. I think if he wants to win another title, he's going to have to sign another contract after this one. I, th- I think he and possibly everybody else needs the uh, needs the 2026 rules reset to uh, to stop Red Bull, to have a chance of of stopping Red Bull. And actually, I wouldn't put it past him and Mercedes agreeing to another deal and Lewis racing on even longer. The funny thing is, and I think you can offer a perspective on this, Ed, when Lewis was a younger driver in F1, I always got the impression he wasn't one of these guys who was going to be around forever. He was certainly not going to be racing into his 40s. It just, he had success early and then he had a lot more you know, success a few years later when he joined Mercedes. I always felt that he would go on and do other things with his life and wouldn't be one of these guys who end up having a you know a twenty year F one career, which he'll be approaching by the end of this this contract. But I suspect, especially given how demanding F one is on your time now, you're going to have twenty four race calendars and that sort of thing. For for people like for Lewis and Fernando Alonso to be saying, yeah, we'll do this into our early forties. We'll put everything else in our lives on hold. We'll devote ourselves to this for as long as they are. I find that fascinating because I never expected that from Lewis. And I wonder, is it just the eighth title factor or is it just that he's been in F1 for a long time and he loves being an F1 driver? It's very difficult to say, isn't it? It's easy to create a scenario where if he won the eighth title, he might have retired there and then or after another year or something. That's perfectly possible, but he might not have done. That's that's purely speculative. 
the fact he talked about unfinished business, I think, makes it clear he wants one more title. I suspect it might be one more title and out, perhaps. But yeah, that it's difficult because that's a good motivation. But as long as it doesn't down the line leave you just with that motivation, if you just feel you've got to hang on to try and achieve a, a, one other thing, when other stuff's peeled away, that's a bit of a concern. I, I think Hamilton absolutely wants to be an F1 and wants to keep going at this stage. But yeah, he has to be wary of that becoming the the sole focus. And that that's quite a difficult thing for anyone to do. Yeah, I think you wrote something along those lines on a race website, Ed, and I found that really interesting. I don't get the impression he is beholden to that to that one reason it's it's perhaps the primary motivation but i can't imagine him clinging on sort of to his own detriment or i think if he ever gets the feeling that maybe his his powers are starting to to fade or it's all slipping through his fingers i think he'd be gone when i say that i think he's gonna have to sign a contract for 26 onwards i could definitely see that being a kind of one year plus options so check out the new rules and if mercedes aren't at it straight away he would probably say, look, you guys can tell me that you're going to get it right for 27 and 28, but I heard that for 22 and 23 and 24. Um, so I've had a go at these new rules uh, and I think I'm done. Yeah, I can see it going that way, but I can't remember who it was on our team, Ed, if it was you or maybe Scott Mitchell Marm said, you know, there's a ch- there's basically a chance of fear of missing out if you stop before a major rules change that could shake the order up. Yeah, I don't know why he'd leave. I think that would be the worst time for anybody to retire is in, in yeah. 2025. And and he knows that from the start of his Mercedes journey, doesn't he? Because the second year of his you know, time there, obviously Mercedes took a, a quantum leap and surely in the back of his mind, he's thinking, oh, you know, maybe they can can do that again. Maybe there's some weaknesses on the Red Bull side with the, the powertrain, but obviously that's very much would have to be a, a speculative thing. Um, so yeah, I, I can't see him doing that. And Especially if if Russell is there, I think some drivers kind of hanging on year by year. They can't always do that, but there's two things there. Obviously, Hamilton's got that status where he he's able to do that. He's probably one of the very very few drivers who's able to hang around in a big team and maybe just go year by year. Um, and then obviously they've got Russell alongside him as well, so they wouldn't be completely left if he suddenly decided quite late to to not come back the following year. They've obviously got their very solid backup option in the way they didn't have that when he was with Bottas. And then, of course, you've got everybody else as well who would be very eager to go in that Mercedes. It is interesting, though, because obviously this is sort of lined up with with various expiry dates of other contracts as well. So see, that's when Norris's McLaren deal ends at the end of 25. And then, see, a year before that, you've got, I think, Leclerc and Sainz are up out there at the end of 2024. So it'll be interesting to see how other drivers align themselves with Hamilton Steele and and are they going to kind of leave themselves open for 2026 or are they just going to have to crack on and sign up to their own long-term deals? I think it's it's certainly, even though this is expected, it's still got, I think, kind of huge um, ramifications for the rest of the market as well. It'll be interesting to see how long someone like Lewis wants to go on for because he certainly could do another deal after that and that could be the right decision. He had quite a good span in terms of the F1 he's raced through in terms of the overall load because the testing was already reducing when he made his debut in 2007 and then from 2009 onwards there have been various forms of in-season testing ban and testing has been very restricted. I remember when Schumacher came back in 2010 he said one of the reasons he could do it was the fact there was a testing ban and that that just daily grind has been reduced and obviously now that's been slightly offset by greater daily grind in terms of the number of races as Glenn pointed out. So it's kind of swinging a little bit more back towards that. But it's interesting to see how a driver who's come through that level of intensity is able just to keep going. Because I think usually, it, I mean, there is there are physical limits. You can't hold back time forever. But usually it's the determination, the desire that fades before the ability and the physical conditioning and all those things. And his longevity is is very impressive. I did see some people sort of comparing it to, you know, the fact that Alonso took a gap, that Schumacher took a gap. Um, in their career, you know, they went away for a year or two or three years. But I don't think it's quite the same thing. I think this is very much um, Hamilton's in a race winning machinery still, or at least, well, podium challenging machinery with the potential to have race winning machinery the next year. I think in the circumstances of other drivers like Alonso, you know, there was no car there that was going to be on the podium. Um, Schumacher, obviously, very specific circumstances with Ferrari as well the first time. So I think it is a, is a bit different, but it is still a, a testament to his his endurance that he hasn't had to take a break i think it's probably shows that over the winter in between seasons and in between races and in 
summer breaks, he is able to have that kind of reset, that switching off, which some drivers sort of need a, a sabbatical for. I think he seems to be a driver who who doesn't need that. I think he was very close to it perhaps in the past, but over the winter, I think especially after 21, he seemed to have a bit of a time, obviously was basically off from social media for ages as well. So he's obviously able to have that reset, but but some drivers need to completely walk away from, from F1 to have. I think also it is possible the next couple of years could yield something. I think a championship push next year would be fanciful, but Mercedes has everything it needs. Red Bull aren't miracle workers. They're doing an outstanding job, but they work with the same laws of physics, the same rules, the same resources pretty much as everyone else. And Mercedes can make big steps, a big Big, big determining factor in that will be this, how next year's car works in terms of the architectural changes. I'd say, if I had to put money on it, I'd say Red Bull will win the the next couple of championships in 24 and 25. But it's not a dead cert, so who knows what might happen. But talking of Red Bull, Glenn, should we talk about Sergio Perez? Because the man himself says he's willing to consider a future away from Red Bull after his current contract ends ahead of 2025. So how do you see the situation developing? Same way I think Perez sees it developing. He'll be looking for another drive for 2025. Um, I do believe that he'll keep his seat for next year. Uh, I think Red Bull will honour that that contract. But the die's cast now. Perez has been bottassed, hasn't he? You know, a, a decent driver just gets ground down after a while of being alongside a brilliant driver. Um, and it every every driver who gets to the F1 level. Well, every driver likes to think they're the best in the world, but I think the drivers who are good enough to get to F1, they all think that they are the best and put me in the best car and I'll win a championship. And I think it's now dawned on Perez that that's not going to happen. He's not, you know, he's not of the level of a Verstappen and some of the other elite drivers in the championship. And clearly that is very hard to take mentally and that's understandable because the belief I think that all these drivers have is genuine. So when they get shattered, that's kind of your whole existence and everything your life has been based around is now being being called into to question. So he needs a reset and I hope for his sake that over the, the latter part of this year and certainly throughout next year, if it's going to be his last year at Red Bull, he can just get his head around that without becoming a really flat, deflated number two who can't, contribute the one last thing i'd say about checo is he's talked about he would love to stay at red bull for longer um but if it is uh if this is his last red bull contract he wants to stay in f1 i think that's good but he's also talked about he wants to see if red bull can develop a car that works for both drivers and i just don't think that's gonna happen because red bull aren't building a car for verstappen they're building the fastest car possible and it just so happens that Max can get the most out of it. If they ended up building a car, if they found out that there was a new route and it was actually faster to build a car that suited Perez, after a few races, Max would work out how to drive it. He'd adapt and he'd be better than Checo again. So I don't, I don't really think there's anything in that for Perez. I, I think, yeah, we are, we get, we, I think there's an end point in sight now. And for me, it's the end of 2024. Yeah, and as I always say, there's no disgrace in not being at Verstappen's level. Plenty of drivers have been through this before. Very, very good Formula One drivers who tend to be kind of retrospectively accorded greater respect, shall we say. Now, obviously, you know, we're always pointing out and analysing Perez's level of performance because that's what you've got to do at any given time. It's what you do with all the drivers. But he's won six Grand Prix, had a long and very successful Formula One career. He's done a great job for a number of teams. So it's not a binary thing of Verstappen's good and Perez is rubbish by any stretch of the imagination. And yeah, what Marco says has uh, sort of the, the, uh, at its heart a truth about the performance level, but it does sum up why it's quite difficult to pick the right sort of teammate for uh, for Max Verstappen. But always the team will galvanise around the better driver. And when push comes to shove, you know, this is elite sport, isn't it? If you want control, if you want the success, et cetera, et cetera, your first thing to do is be the best at what you're doing. He's not the best driver in that team. Perez isn't going to be the best driver in that team. There's overwhelming evidence and data to show that. So it's going to stay being Verstappen. That's just how it is. And yeah, like you said, Glenn, it's, it's like he's he's got up to the second ladder, the second, uh, the second rung from the top of the ladder, rather, in terms of if the top rungs, the absolute great drivers. To get up to the second rung of the ladder is still pretty There's amazing. no shame in that. Oh, absolutely. He's had a fantastic career. If he retired tomorrow, you'd say, you know, well done, what a job you've done. And it's going to be fascinating, though, isn't it? Who is going to replace him? Who's going to be in that second seat for 2025? It's it's the best seat. Well, that's probably another debate. Is it the best seat? 
uh, in F1, it's certainly the best car, but do you want to to go up against Verstappen? I mean, I think every, well, <laughs> most drivers would perhaps back themselves to have a decent chance. Glenn's very good to <laughs> jump in here. So yeah, Glenn, what do you think? Do you think it's the one of the the best seats to go into or will most drivers be thinking? Maybe not. I think if you get offered it, you've got to take it because... Yeah, the, the worst thing that's going to happen, or you might you may suffer some reputational damage, I suppose, but the worst thing that's going to happen if you do a good job is you're going to finish second every week and there's no other car that can guarantee you that at the moment. I, there seems to be this growing momentum that Lando Norris could be in the running for that seat. And I, I find that really surprising. I get that he and Max are really good friends. They get on well, they do sim racing together. All of that's great, but it just feels like someone of Lando's ability would be too fast for Red Bull. I don't, I don't think Verstappen would would say, I don't want a quick teammate. He'll think he, he can beat everybody on the grid right now and there's a chance that he could. But I just think if you're Red Bull, if you see the tension there's been between Verstappen or the Verstappen camp and Perez, the, the tension has been within that team whenever Sergio is somewhere near Max, I, I can't see Red Bull going, it's worth risking more of that and risking upsetting Max or the people around him by putting in someone that much faster alongside. I do think they'll they'll look for another number two driver unless they get uh, a heads up from Max that, oh, I'm going to leave F1 by year X. You know, I think he's contracted to 28 or something, isn't he? Unless they get a heads up that he wants to leave before that or we get close to that point and they're going, right, Max, we need a succession plan now. We're going to have to bring in someone fast who can take over when you go. But I just can't see Red Bull wanting the aggro of having someone that quick in the car alongside him. Yeah, exactly. And I don't think Verstappen really knows what he's going to do in 2028 when it comes to new contracts. That's a long or, way away. Or, exactly. And the thing is, it's like you were referring earlier to Hamilton talking about earlier in his career about not doing... Nobody really knows what's going to happen around the corner. All of us in all walks of life have these sort of notional ideas of what might happen down the line. And it's pretty rare that that does. It really is quite rare. I mean, what will any of us be doing in five years' time? You could have an idea, but you, you just don't know. And that that's the same when in uh, when in Formula One. And I imagine Verstappen might be sincere in thinking, oh, I don't want to still be doing this when I'm 40. But 40 is a very long way away for him. He'll feel very different when he's 38, 39. That, that's just the nature of life. Your perspective constantly changes, which is why I must admit, it almost feels fairly futile asking Max about beyond 28, really. It, I just don't really see what it achieves. It's too far out. Unless there's contract talks going on to extend beyond it, which would make no sense at the moment, it, it, it's completely meaningless. And I think, you know, Red Bull need to make sure that some of those options are going to be in-house as well. I mean, otherwise they're going to be in another scenario where they are having to look at sort of other drivers. And I think one of the best ways to do that is to make sure that Liam Lawson is on the grid next year to make sure that Ricardo and Sonoda is sort of the seats for all three of them. There's obviously only two at Alpha Tauri, but I think one thing they can do is make sure that probably Lawson, you know, go down to Williams or Alfa Romeo and see if there's a seat there, see if they can sort of get him in, in into a race seat. I mean, imagine if he went to, to Williams alongside Albon and then, you know, Red Bull have got a, a known quantity there, a decent benchmark, and then obviously they're not going to have access to, to data and stuff like that, but they could probably get a decent read of, of just how good Lawson is against another potential option to obviously to, to bring back Albon as well. So I think it's important for Red Bull to, to get their options lined up. I mean, it's the whole ethos of the, the whole team is to, to bring their talent up. So... I think um, it's important for them to, to be looking at the the next best thing as well, sort of below Formula One as well. We talk about Verstappen, if he's going to leave in 2028. I think the succession plan is probably somebody, you know, outside of F1, if we're going by the, the, the kind of historic Red Bull route. So there's various things they can be doing as well to, to shore that up. They can't sort of simply wait to see if Perez performs or not. We'll see kind of who else is around. They need to kind of think, make sure that they're getting their juniors kind of seat time and, and one of the best ways I could say would be to to get Lawson on the grid next year because I think what he showed very very small sample size but I think he's been um, yeah very good so far yeah promising starts the next thing we need to see happen is the next drivers in the queue to do their deals obviously there's some big drivers who are not under contract for 25 both Ferrari drivers Sainz and Leclerc don't have deals beyond the end of 2024 there's a good chance they'll both stay at Ferrari but they're both in play you've got the question about what happens at Aston Martin with all sorts of rumours 
they say there's nothing in it about whether Stroll will still be there in 25. They've confirmed him for next year. The Alpine drivers, I think, certainly Ocon was contracted to the end of 24. I imagine Gasly's on a two plus one deal, probably. So there's, there's various drivers in kind of decent level teams and upwardly mobile teams that have yet to tie themselves down. But the interesting thing about the, the Mercedes thing and the fact we know there's a Red Bull seat that could be available for 25. It creates a bit of an offset, if you like, in the driver market because Mercedes is now closed effectively to 26, but there'll be this possible deal for Red Bull in 25. You might have a driver who fancies a chance of a Mercedes drive down the line a year later and they're offered Red Bull and they think, oh, do, you want to, do I want to risk Red Bull in that situation or do I want to hang on? So it's an interesting landscape shift. Obviously, there's a few little bits and pieces down the bottom end of the driver market still to be settled for next year. Alfa Romeo with Joe being one of them, Williams with Logan Sargent. But yeah, those are the big questions along, of course, with <laughs> what happens with Alfa Tauri just that, that, that sort of low-level shuffling at this stage. But yeah, that, there's a lot still to happen in the driver market for the next few years. And no landscape shifts quicker than Red Bull and AlphaTauri. So even if a driver was put in for 2025, perhaps you still fancy your chances for 2026 because there could be a, a seat there again. Yeah, exactly. But it's going to be something we'll talk about endlessly on this podcast, and it's always endlessly fascinating. So let's wait for the next big landmark, which I have a suspicion will be one of the Ferrari drivers. I'm going to have a punt on Sainz being the next to uh, to do a deal. A couple of seasons. You think he'll sign time. before Leclerc? I think he might. If I was interesting, I believe it's. I believe that's his priority. If they offer him enough, uh, the right length, the right deal, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, I think he'll take it. And I think they will think, well, actually, if we can get Carlos signed up, that allows us to put a little bit more pressure on Leclerc, who they do see as their prize asset. And Sainz is a very, very good driver, very, very good driver. In fact, he's someone who maybe Red Bull should think about to put alongside Verstappen. I'd be a bit wary about the history between those two. They get on fine, but it got quite political in the Toro Rosso days. So maybe that wouldn't work. But science is the right sort of performance profile of driver to work really well there. But anyway, yeah, I mean, that's just my feeling. I'm not basing that on any intelligence. It's just a base based on that could be the way that, that things play out. So uh, yeah, let's see how wrong I am on that one. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Let's move on to off-track matters now, Glenn. Obviously, there's been speculation for months about potential cost cap breaches. The FI announced its findings earlier this week and all 10 teams have been certified. So can you explain exactly what that means? Uh, it means they've all passed, uh, which I, I guess means they all came in under the cap. And it means we can all breathe a sigh of relief because I was dreading a repeat of another cost cap. Uh, oh, I don't even know what the word is for it. I, I just didn't want the drama again. Um, not because I don't like drama. I, I love I love a bit of F1 drama, a bit of soap opera, and, and even, you know, some some legality arguments. They're, they're all great, but I don't want them to be taking place on spreadsheets. Spreadsheet drama isn't isn't for me. Um 
So, yeah, I think if, if there's going to be a cheating row, let's have it over the legality of a car, not uh, not clever accounting. Um, so, yeah, and I got the impression that um, most most people, most certainly most people in the industry, but also a lot of the fans and the comments I saw when we when we published our stuff about it, people were glad we're not going to go through this again. Um, which I think reflects pretty well on everyone. The, the, the thing that was sad to see, it, I think it was minutes before um, hashtag Red Bull Cheats was trending again on on Twitter or X or whatever platform you want to call it. <laughs> I, I get it. Uh, but I think if uh, my position on that is whatever you think of what happened with the 2021 accounts and if Red Bull got off lightly or whatever, if you think that that overspend in 2021 is the reason they're dominating F1 now, you're not paying attention. Um, and I, I'm glad we're not going to have another instalment of that because, as I say, it flares up all the time anyway. So, I'm just, you know, people can live in the past with the 2021 breach. I'm just glad there's not going to be another one. And the problem is it just drags up everything, doesn't it, from a season which finished 10 months ago. So, thankfully, this year, that's not the case. Um, but obviously... I'm hoping that now it will just become an annual thing that people barely notice. So, you know, all 10 teams have, have passed. I'm, I'm hoping that first year was just a case of them not quite grasping the rules. And, you know, this year, uh, from from now on, it will just be a, a thing that, that's barely noted. And it's important, I think, to note that the cost cap is incredibly complicated. There was always going to be a troubleshooting period, which is why I, I always felt that the first proper breaches which we did have 12 months ago needed to be dealt with with not necessarily a light touch but they needed to be dealt with in a way that shored up the cost cap and made sure everything worked long term because there were things that had to be worked out obviously Red Bull were bang to rights on it they absolutely right that they were penalized but there's also been a lot of back and forth this year as well it's a hugely complicated thing to do and there's always points where to put it simply you've either got to throw you're spending for something into the the non-F1 bucket or another bucket and justify it. And there's you have to do this on just countless things. And there's so many things going on in terms of these the way these teams are operating and so many opportunities to uh, uh, to exploit it or to be accused of this, that, and the other. There's a lot of going back and forth. And obviously, the FI have beefed up their department doing it. I think they've got eight, eight people full-time pretty much on scrutinising this. It's absolutely mind-boggling. And it's very complicated. And... The trouble with that is it means somebody on the outside can very easily decide they want to assume that somebody's been cheating and therefore they, yeah, it's them. They did it. They're definitely cheating. Red Bull definitely did this or Mercedes did that or McLaren would. Ultimately, you can only go with what's happened with a certification. And I take that to mean that there is a level of accord and agreement on how you interpret the regulations and apply things. That seems to be the, 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 most obvious conclusion for it. Obviously, teams are going to be asked about it when we get to Singapore. They can't avoid uh, avoid talking about it there. So we may see things flowing up or we may hear a fairly united front. But yeah, I'd certainly agree. It's uh, it's a positive for Formula 1. It needs to be something that chirps along in the background and doesn't <laughs> darken our door again, as it were. But if somebody cheats, then of course they should be, uh, uh, they should be come down on for it. And that was one of the big questions, big debates. What would be suitable penalties? But... No penalties needed, at least for the next 12 months. Can we also talk about the new teams process, Josh? Because that cost cap isn't the only off-track FIA-related matter we've been waiting for. But the the application for new teams process, there was a potential for it to be resolved before the August break. It still is rolling on. We're expecting something fairly shortly. But what's taking so long? Yeah, it's been a fairly messy process, hasn't it? Really right from the start. The whole way it's been done has been fairly you know, messy and chaotic, slightly unprofessional perhaps. Uh, you know, it, it's not been done in the best way and, and that's just carried on with these delays. I think they, they made some mistakes in setting out some of the, the deadlines and, and timescale because they've inevitably just not um, fit to that, that time frame. And then now obviously the most recent development is that Andretti is, is fully rebranded as Andretti Global, which is obviously what the kind of F1 entry was was lodged as. So they've kind of changed all of their branding. There's a new uh, X account on, on Twitter, um, all that kind of thing. It doesn't look coincidental, that timing, does it? No, exactly. But is somebody having a bit of fun there or are they sort of saying, well, you know, we are an F1 ready entry and we should be an F1. And if we're rejected... 
you know, that, that sort of saying something in itself. So I think there's, we're gearing up for a difficult time because clearly I think there's a disagreement between the two most important stakeholders in this over whether they should get in. And then obviously there's the huge fan reaction as well, which is inevitably going to come from this. You mentioned the cost gap. I think we can times that by a, a thousand for this if, if Andretti is rejected because although, you know, fans can't see bank balances they can't see sort of how much funds are actually behind the team which i think is probably the most important thing clearly there are lots of elements there which people will be saying well you know they take all the boxes which were set out or they take many, most of the boxes which should be ticked for a new team so yeah it's gonna be an interesting time i for one cannot wait uh, for for this decision either way um for it to come out which will hopefully be very soon the trouble is i don't think the team's bank balance or its backing is what's going to determine if they if they get in. If it goes the way we've been hearing for ages, that they're going to get approved on the FIA's criteria and then F1 on the commercial side isn't going to let them in. That's purely a greed decision because everyone involved in F1, on all the teams have decided we're a franchise model now. Uh, we don't want to share the wealth. We don't want to let anyone else in. We, we've, we've ridden through the hard times. We've helped build this up or have ridden the Netflix wave. Um, and we don't we don't want to share the pie now. We don't want to cut an 11th or 12th slice. And that's going to be really difficult. If that's the way it goes, that's really difficult for F1 to manage. And it's going to create a lot of tension at the top. I'd imagine, um, you know, Scott, who we mentioned earlier, is, is our guy who's chasing this the most. F1 and the FIA have to find a way to come across united on this if that's the way it goes. Because if if you end up with the FIA saying yes and F1, FOM, whatever you want to call them, saying no, that's a bad look. And I think Josh is right. Fans are going to react very badly to this because they want more cars on the grid. And I think there's a feeling that Andretti as an entity is well known enough, is credible enough, is a big enough kind of motorsport empire. They're in so many different championships that they, they feel credible to the outside world. So there's going to have to be very good, very clear reasons for why they don't get in, if they don't get in, that don't just look like all the teams are too greedy and they, they don't and they don't want to share share it around. Michael Andretti gave a quote, I think, to IndyCar broadcaster NBC a week or two ago, where he sounded quite confident. He basically said, like, we think we think we're going to get the nod in a week or two. Um, obviously, if you were Michael Andretti, you wouldn't be stood there going, it's not looking good. I don't think we're going to get in because you don't want to take away any momentum that you think you're building up. But I, I think this is, yeah, the cost cap thing didn't become a massive controversy and issue this time. I have a sneaky feeling this is going to be a big issue. Yeah, well, the way it could well go is that the FIA announces, yeah, we approve them. And then it goes to the F, well, F1 side, Liberty Media, for them to approve. And it almost defies them to say no. And then that creates the public debate you were talking about. It's very interesting because fundamentally, I mean, Mohamed Ben Salem's position at the FIA is that the Concord Agreement allows 12 teams, that the regulations allow 24 cars. So therefore, there has to be something in place to make that possible. Why should it just be a blanket? No, this can never happen. So he, his argument is then you have to have a process and they've launched the process, which the F1 side, Liberty Media, weren't too happy about. And then it's a question of where the bar is. The, the problem I've got with the F1 side is I completely agree with their perspective that they need to you know, protect the financial interests and the integrity, financial integrity of the championship. So you don't want to let in chances or low-quality teams. You do have to let in teams that will offer something. However... If you, you know, as I've done, if you ask a team boss about it and then they say, oh, they've got to bring value, and then you say, okay, how do you quantify what value they can bring? What are your metrics? You know, it, it's always going to be predictive, but how do you actually do that? And the answer is always a tautology. It's always they prove they bring value by bringing value. So, well, that's that's. I not- would ask those team bosses, what value is your team bringing? Because other than yeah. maybe three or four of those teams, what are the rest of them bringing that an eleventh or twelfth team couldn't? And I think that's part of the reason they don't want to let anyone in is because they know that they've got this inflated value at the moment, and it's because they're one of ten, and they don't like the idea of someone else coming in, being able to do what they do, becoming as established as they are, and then they're just they're one of eleven or twelve because actually a lot of those teams aren't that special; they're just there already. Yeah, it's purely purely self-interest. And they also need to be aware that actually if you can grow the pots, you can grow 
the sport, you can grow the interest in, in Formula One. Everybody wins. Then that will actually, exactly, that will be to, to their benefit. So, yeah, they have to be careful not to box themselves into a corner. Yeah, it's just going to get messy, isn't it? And it, it's sort of something the F1 and the FIA have sort of maybe avoided for a while, correct me if I'm wrong, but they've not had like a massive you know, conflict between the two of them on, on different positions for, for quite a while, which is something this I thought this new era has obviously done slightly better than the old regime, but this obviously has a potential to, to blow it wide open. And then also, where do you go from there as well? If Andretti are rejected, then what does that mean for letting in teams in the future? When would be the next time you even have a process like that? And sort of, again, how would you, if you've rejected Andretti, then what are you quantifying? What What were they missing that another brand has to bring in um yeah there's, there's so many questions it's it's gonna create and yeah it, it's hard to see even sort of beyond that where where they go and again obviously I'm, if they're rejected i presume there's going to be you know legal ramifications in it and it feels like a an ugly process that could drag on for a very long time because everything i've seen from andretti you know they're not gonna be rejected and just say oh, all right that's fine you know you're right, actually. We don't bring enough value. They won't go quietly. No, they won't. And and, and why not? Because the amount of money they've spent, the amount of stuff they put into it, I, I couldn't blame them. I mean, I, I think they're, they're well within their rights to, and I think they're going to do it in a very public way, as long as it's within the not interfering with legal stuff. I think they're going to do it in a very public way based on the fact that everything they've done with F1 has been very public. And it's only because they've done everything public, probably, but this has become such a big thing. If this was about high tech, if this was about, you know, the other the other two or three teams, I can't even remember the name of it applied, you know, this would not be as big a storm. But it's because they've kicked up such a fuss for the, what, about two years, pretty much since they were involved in trying to buy Alfa Romeo, so Alfa Romeo Salba. So, yeah, it, it's, it's because they've taken such a public approach and I see no reason why that won't change. And also, they, I think it's been noticeable that they have gone a bit quiet in the last few months like f1 f1 was clearly fed up with how public it was and i think they got told behind the scenes keep quiet do your application and just just sit tight through the process and andretti overall have agreed to that yes you occasionally get quotes from michael or mario but it's because they're asked questions about it i don't think they're going out courting that attention at the moment but you're right the moment they get rejected all, if that happens, all bets are off. And then we are going to hear a lot of noise from them. And I think you're right that they they won't, not only will they make a lot of noise, but I think they will look at what actions they feel they're entitled to take and legal processes and that. So yeah, we could be heading for a real mess. Yeah, well, Mohamed Bansaliam's on record as saying he's concerned about the, the legal side. And that's what makes exactly how this plays out so significant. Because if the regulator approves the new teams, and then defies F1 to reject them, then it's clear what the focal point of any possible legal action would have to be. So that's quite high stakes. And you also have to remember that these teams, certainly some of them have put huge investment into this. They've been employing people. The The dossiers that have been put together are 600 pages plus in some cases. They've done aerodynamic design studies and all these sorts of things. So a lot has been done. So if you don't get let in, it's not just that you're not being allowed the opportunity to spend however many hundreds of millions and billions down the line. You also lose basically everything you've spent already, which is quite significant, certainly in in the case of what we understand from what Andretti have been doing and high tech have been doing stuff uh, as well. Don't know exactly how much, but there is a loss to recoup there. And if you think you've been invited into a process that you had no chance whatsoever of succeeding in, then you've got a case. So that's what's going to make the next step so interesting. So it all depends on exactly what the FIA says and whether, as you said, Glenn, they've managed to create a united line with the F1 side to uh, to ensure that, uh, that this is done properly. But yeah, it's been untidy so far. I wouldn't be surprised if it's untidy again. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. 
Well, Glenn, this is a topic we haven't really touched on the podcast before, but it's been a big talking point rumbling on. And that's Felipe Massa's legal action about Singapore 2008. What do you make of what he's doing? What do you think he's aiming to achieve? <laughs> I keep forgetting this is a real thing because it's so ridiculous. Um, I assume the goal here is money, uh, either a payout by winning whatever case he thinks he can bring forward or just being paid off to go away and drop the action. Um, also, the, the idea that Massa and his side will just challenge the FIO over this and no other interested parties will, will get involved. He's not going to have a clear run at this. Um, that seems to be being overlooked as well, as if it's just Felipe Massa and Justice versus 2008. It's not, it's not that simple. But I've... In preparation for this, I've done a lot of looking into this and trying to corroborate the stories that are going around. Obviously, this has all been triggered, we think, from a Bernie Eccleston quote from an interview he gave earlier this year. And also, that's ridiculous. For it to come, for the, if this has really come about because Bernie said a throwaway line in an interview, have, we, have these people not seen Bernie's track record over the last 50 years? He'll say whatever he wants in interviews. Um, and he doesn't really care what, what, what the substance is behind them, or as Bernie's now saying, he doesn't even remember if he said it or not. So, if, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna go to the case and Bernie Eccleston's your star witness, and he gets up there and goes, "Don't know," then you haven't got much to go on. But I've looked into what Bernie said, and I've gone back to Max Mosley's book, FIA President at the time, because he talked about it as well. And I think I can join the two stories up just by correcting one thing that Bernie said. So Bernie said. Max and he were informed during the 2008 season that about what had happened in Singapore. And that's the bit Massa's clinging to. It's the fact that this was potentially known before the season concluded and they swept it under the carpet or whatever. So Bernie's quote was, we decided not to do anything for now. We wanted to protect the sport and save it from a huge scandal. And he says, that's why I used, uh, he persuaded his former driver, Nelson Piquet Sr., to keep quiet at the time. So I think we can assume that the tip-off in 2008 must have come from PK Senior, who's very close to Bernie. Now, Max's book, which came out a few years ago, he says he was first made aware of the claims that this might have been a deliberate crash in early 2009. So I think that's where the confusion has come. I think Bernie's gone, I think we were told in 2008, when actually the story is they were told in early 2009. Max's story is then... Uh, he said uh, he considered what he was told in early 2009 to be some sort of confirmation that all the suspicions might be well founded. But Max went on to say there was absolutely no concrete evidence of anything untoward. So they considered holding an inquiry at the time, but they decided that everyone involved would just deny it. And Max's words in his book were without real evidence, we would get nowhere. So very reluctantly, I decided we could do nothing for the moment. So I think that's what Bernie's saying about we didn't want a huge scandal. I think that tallies up with Max saying we didn't have any evidence and nobody was going to sing at the time and, and tell us what happened. Because, of course, PK Jr., who was the whistleblower in the end, is under contract to Renault at the time. So he's not going to go into an inquiry and say, yep, they told me to, uh, to do what I did. So that's what I think has gone on here. Bernie, I reckon Bernie has misremembered when they first, when he was probably first told by PK Senior what had gone on. He probably said to Max, Nelson's told me this. They've gone, Max has gone, can we do anything with that? And they've decided they couldn't at the time. So I think that's probably where we're going to get to. And I, you'd like to think that Felipe Massa's legal team might have read Max Mosley's book <laughs> before launching this action and as for the idea of changing championship results for any year years later i'm not comfortable with that we've heard stories to go back to eccleston and pk we've heard how many stories have we heard about what brabham might have been up to in the early 80s a lot of it admitted by people who were in the team at the time but nobody ever says oh they should have been thrown out for doing this let's go back and, and rewrite those championships it's just too much time has passed and there are too many hypotheticals here as well all right Massa wants that result scratched from the record, I assume. Why should all the people... And I do find it funny that Fernando Alonso has always got to keep that win, given what we know his team did. But why should everyone else who was in that race have their results taken away for this as well? So it's it's a mess. It makes quite a lot of assumptions. Uh, there was a long way to go in that race. Um, and, I, yeah, it's... 
I hope I hope it doesn't go anywhere. And I should say that's got nothing to do with the fact that it's a Lewis Hamilton championship. I'm sure I'm sure we'll be accused of that. Um, but no, I couldn't care who the other champion was. I, I just don't think I don't think we should be, you know, looking back over this, mainly for the reasons I've outlined there. I, I think Bernie's just got his date slightly wrong. And if that's what Massa's whole case is based on, then it's flawed from the start. Yeah, and it becomes very problematic, as you say, if somebody cheats in some way, shape or form in a race, as you say, you don't expunge it from the record. You might disqualify the car. So that's one thing. Secondly, Ferrari and Massa accepted the way it was dealt with in 2009 when it was taken on. They didn't launch any additional action. That was probably the ideal time to try and do something. So I think from a sporting perspective, you're not going to change the result ultimately. And there'll be endless materials that you can do about arguing what the timeline is. I think Whiting suggest, Charlie Whiting suggested that maybe PK talked to him about it in Brazil as well at the end of 2008. But you can always find all these things and you can have an idea something's happened and have no evidence. You need witnesses to come forward, etc. which obviously it was Nelson PK Jr. being willing to put out a proper state, put a proper statement, submit a proper statement that really got the ball rolling. So then it comes down to, yeah, is it a financial thing? And you know, Massa could argue, oh, well, if he'd been a world champion, there's lost earnings, etc. Well, that's all very hypothetical. It's it's very, very difficult to know what the ultimate end game will be. I don't think they've got any serious belief that there'll be a sporting result change because that wouldn't make any sense because everything that happens after that is impacted. That's just the way things are. And I get the impression that perhaps for Massa, it's just uh, almost reminding everyone what happened and perhaps he thinks he can get a little bit of cash out of it or something. Uh, the thing I think is a shame, I, I've got a lot of time for Felipe Massa. I think he's a, he's a genuinely likeable character. I've always found him honest and direct and good to deal with over the years of dealing with him. I think it's a little bit of a shame because it, it does. It, it's not his fault, but obviously the whole thing, the way he took the defeat with such dignity in Brazil in 2008. I'm not going to say that's changed by this, but it, it just seems a bit... I think it, it is, it just sort of, it, it just does undermine that a little bit, I think. It does. It, it, it's Massa, Massa's performance that day in that race and the way he handled himself on that podium in front of his home crowd, losing a championship that when he crossed the check, when he took the checker flag, he thought he'd won it. The way he handled that was, is so much of his of his legacy and so much of the respect that people have for him is based on that. And I do think that the pursuit of this, if it can and if it continues, I do think it tarnishes that. I think and that I think that's a real shame as well. It'll be the sort of first first thing that season is now remembered for, which which isn't right because it, it's an amazing season. He drove brilliantly all year. You know, people forget. I think that the high level that he was operating at. In 2007, He'd have been a deserving as well. champion. Exactly, exactly, and I, I think people forget that just because of what came after, and he's m- probably more remembered for, for being Alonso's kind of you know Bottas or Perez type teammate. But you know he reached highs that that those two drivers could only ever dream of. But uh, yeah, it, it's a shame because uh, that's what this season's going to be remembered for, and it has kind of soured it. Um, and for the tsunami of of new fans over the past few years all they're going to know about Felipe Massa is the driver who's you know contesting a championship and sort of trying to take it away and and all that so I think that's a shame too but perhaps that's part of it perhaps it's sort of a bit of um, name recognition as well and sort of there's potential opportunities there as well in terms of money but then perhaps he's also series exactly exactly I could see that but but why not do that instead of uh, this legal action that would probably be much more um, popular I mean I, I, I could Another question is, you know, is he going to be sort of back on punditry and stuff like that? Is he going to be at Grand Prix and all that kind of thing as well? It kind of is a, it's a shame. He dodged Monza, didn't he, for that reason? Yeah, they've, they've been using him as uh, a general purpose ambassador. So he wanders around and goes to events and talks to people in Paddock Club. He wasn't at Monza for that. I haven't checked it, but I've seen it suggested that was for this reason. That seems like a fairly sensible thing uh, to do. I don't think he's, he's not been banned or anything but by any stretch of the imagination, but it just obviously makes sense not to have somebody on uh, on active duty for you when he's engaging in this uh, in this legal action. But it's, yeah, it's, it's a strange, it's a very strange uh, situation, but... It just changes everything. Ultimately, yeah, he would have won that race almost certainly. I mean, I guess it's possible Ferrari could have messed up the pit stop anyway, but it wouldn't have been a crowded pit lane. Had they done a regulation pit stop, he'd probably have won that race. Chances are he'd done a mighty pole lap as well. And I get why Massa is upset about this. I get 
I th- he genuinely does feel that that was not dealt with correctly at the time. Maybe the reason he went along with it in 2009 was Ferrari came to some agreement not to do anything, all for the good of the sports stuff. And perhaps at the time he was he would have pushed for it. He wasn't exactly at the forefront of getting involved in what was going on at that time because obviously he'd had the crash in Hungarian Grand Prix qualifying. So he probably had some bigger things to focus on at that time. So maybe he feels he wasn't given the opportunity to really speak up and properly push for what he felt should have happened when this was all being dealt with uh, in 2009 as well. So there's all these factors to uh, to consider. But does anyone think he's actually going to get anything out of it? Might F1 and FIA pay him a bit to just say, yes, okay, we get why you're annoyed? Or do you think it's just going to be one of those legal things that rumbles on and goes nowhere? I don't I- like I say, I think a payout is probably the best thing he can hope for, but I can't see F1. It's a slippery slope for F1 if if they decide that it's worth either yeah either conceding or or you know doing a, a paying him off to go away. I, I can't see either of those things happening. I don't think it's in F1's interest, and it risks further things being dragged up in the future if if they take that action. So I don't think he's going to get anything out of this other than. A slightly bruised reputation because he's probably gone down in some people's estimation. Yeah, because surely sort of giving any kind of payout would almost be an omission of fault or some kind of yeah. element of that. So I can't see anything sort of on top of the table, perhaps under the table, but <laughs> don't suggest anything like that. But uh, yeah, I, I I can't see this going anywhere. I don't think unless there's something really obvious or um, something that we're missing from from this whole thing. I, I don't see a reason to to pay him off or, or to give any kind of settlement i i can see f1 just kind of you know letting this play out and um yeah the, the, there's no there's no need i don't think because at the end of the day he's not sort of i don't think he's tarnishing f1's reputation or the fia's reputation i think unfortunately this is is most reflecting on on his own reputation i think yeah and to get anywhere really he has to prove a, an active conspiracy in 2008 and the fact that this then was tackled in 2009 and action was taken, et cetera, that is kind of a counter argument to that. So you have to prove that it was actively covered up rather than just, just even simply knowing about it or having a suspicion or thinking something happened. If you don't have the evidence, then you can't do anything about it. So yeah, that's the thing that's going to have to be proved. And then even if you do prove that, you have to then show what, what did you lose? Assuming they're not going to change the sporting result, which they won't. What? did Felipe Massa lose out on? Did he have a completely different career? Did he have completely different contracts? It's it's very, very hard to prove anything. Maybe uh, when they say, how much did you lose out? He'll just Google Lewis Hamilton net worth and then say that. Well, I mean, those are the sorts of things that are, that are done. That's that's what you would do if you were a lawyer involved in it because that's what you can try and tether it to. <laughs> well, I'd hope if you're a lawyer involved in this, you'd do a bit more than that. <laughs> well, I think you might. they might do the, the long-winded, expensive version, the, the thing that, that, that costs yeah. a lot of money and takes a lot of time to do. But at heart, that's that, that's benchmarking, isn't it? So that that's uh, actually a standard process. This is a topic for a great Bring Back V8s trip, but I don't think his career changes at all if, if he's champion. I mean, obviously, Agreed. his his reputation is standing and his caption when he appears on TV would say F1 world champion. But I don't see any way his, his career changes because the events that defined his career was, was not winning or losing in Brazil. It was getting to that point and having that incredible season. And then obviously, as we said, the, the way he dealt with it and, and what came after, I don't think was was influenced by having a championship. If he goes up against Alonso from 2010 and has a championship, I don't see that playing out much differently. If there's perhaps a little bit more in his favour, perhaps, but there was no way that it was going to make a, a major difference, at least in my opinion. One of the really funny things about that year that I remember is after Spa, where obviously Massa had won after Hamilton got the penalty, there were people asking Massa in the few races after, oh, if you win the championship by a few points, won't that devalue it because of what happened at Spa? Because some people were annoyed at the way the rules were applied at, at Spa. And, and in fact, I would say actually by the letter of the law, the Spa penalty was 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 reasonable actually in terms of how you look at how things work. Probably you'd apply a bit of common sense and not apply it because of the, way, the circumstances. But there was a narrative before that that it was unfairly favouring Massa. But the point being that championships are decided over full seasons. Yes, there's always key swings and key moments that change things, but it becomes very, very difficult to zero in on anything 
any one specific thing because you can then pick out other counterexamples that were not within uh, the, the the power of people. The whole Singapore thing was an extreme, extreme case. I'd certainly agree with that. And I would not expect Massa ever to be happy with the way that played out. Of course he shouldn't be because what happened in that race was wrong. But yeah, it's just a little bit more complicated. So yeah, we'll see how he goes on with that and... Yeah, maybe something will happen, but I'd, I'd be very, very surprised if it gets anywhere except just being a, one of these things that talk, that, one of these talking points that flares up every now and again, and we never really get a proper resolution until it's uh, quietly dropped. Well, thanks very much to Josh and Glenn for your insight. Head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen loads to read there. Listen to our other podcasts, including Bring Back V10, starring Glenn Freeman, just finishing our latest series. And uh, as we discussed earlier, Glenn will soon start work on preparing properly for the next one. We've got an IndyCar podcast as well, Formula E, MotoGP, and the Race F1 Tech Show with Gary Anderson. The latest episode of that's got Gary talking about flexi wings, which is going to be a talking point in the Singapore Grand Prix weekend. And also take a look at our YouTube channel as well, both short and long form videos. So we're going to be turning our attention soon to the Singapore Grand Prix of this year. So stay with us for everything you need to know from the world of Formula One. The Athletic.